You are listening to an audio recording from the ministry of Jefferson Town Bible Church in Jefferson Town, Kentucky, where we gather to proclaim God's Word. For more information, please visit jtownbible.org. Well, I don't want to shock you this morning, but open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. I want to spend some moments with you this morning talking about something that's missing. Missing, at the very least, in our American culture and society, and missing to some extent, diminished certainly in the church. And I speak of the church in broad terms. And that's the majesty of God. In 1915, there was a ship that we all well know of, the Titanic, that was making its maiden voyage across the Atlantic. It was going to arrive in Port New York. It was one of three ocean liners being, uh, that was built. And this was the second one of that fleet that was built by a British shipping company, and it was the biggest and it was the best. All three of them were. And the understanding was concerning this ship and similar ships is that, uh, that they were virtually unsinkable. Uh, no one would say that any ship was completely unsinkable, but the attitude was these ships can take about any blow that can be given to it and keep on steaming. In fact, that was not only the thinking that was true for those who funded the building of these three ships uh, that were designed to carry passengers back and forth from Europe to the United States and other places, but other companies who uh, had ships that were similar to this, whether they were passenger ships or cargo ships, uh, they pretty well thought because of the technology that they had in hand at that time and that they used, that with the modern technology, as they referred to it at that time, that those ships were pretty well unsinkable. And in fact, there were a couple of instances where some of these ships had had, uh, run into icebergs and were able to continue steaming, not without damage, of course, but they didn't sink. And so the attitude about the Titanic uh, was that this ship was largely unsinkable. It was built with uh, with the latest and greatest technology. It had sealed compartments so that even if um, an accident did happen, they could seal those off so that water would not flood. And uh, it was built so that four of those compartments could take damage and be flooded and the ship would continue to sail on. Well, on that fateful trip, when they did hit the iceberg, it wasn't like they said, there's an iceberg, let's see what's happened. <laughs> but they, they were not uh, real quick about steering away from it. And the ship hit that iceberg just right. And 
as it hit in the middle of that ship, it, it affected the steel structure at the bottom of the ship, and five compartments flooded with water. That was one more than it said that it could withstand and, and stay afloat. So it hit it just at the right spot on the ship to cause that kind of damage. And it went down. Now, there are the technical explanations as to why this ship went down, and, and we read about them. And those were, uh, those were issues that were remedied in subsequent shipbuilding. And there were other issues that uh, were not addressed, that more lives could have been saved. Over 1,500 people perished in, on that accident. 700 people were able to uh, get off the ship in the lifeboats and get to safety. But there was one component that I don't know if it was addressed. I don't know if it's still been addressed among humanity. They were impressed with their technology. They were impressed with their great abilities in shipbuilding, and, and they were marvelous. They're to be commended. They built fantastic ships at that time. And the technology was there. But it allowed them a sense of safety that was unwarranted. And so when the unanticipated happened and when the unexpected happened, the ship sunk. How is it that humanity comes to the point as it pertains to God that we miss the majesty of God? We do not appreciate and factor in the majesty of God in our existence. as humanity for centuries up to the present, we go about life with little regard to God. That's not a wise path. How is it that that happens? Here is where we go to Romans momentarily. The attitude of humanity, as God describes in Romans chapter 3 and verse 18, as he comes to the conclusion of describing the sinfulness of man, the depravity of human nature, and the culmination of it is in this statement in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This word fear, the heart of it means respect. There is no respect of God and who he is before their eyes. It's not appreciated. It's not seen. It's not factored in. That's where sin brings humanity. We lose sight of the reality and the person of God and who He is and His majesty. We know that to be the case today. But, you know, this is a story that is a rerun. It is rerun by humanity century after century. And I want to take us back several centuries, about 600 years 
before Christ to the nation of Israel and the prophet Isaiah. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah. And before we get into some observations this morning about the majesty of God, a little background. Isaiah, the prophet of God, writing to his people, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And this nation that had been brought into existence by God, he called Abraham out of Ur of Chaldees and built from him a nation that became known as Israel, chosen of God, made by God, given promises by God, given the law by God, given a, a real estate, a land that God said, this is your land. And this is what I give for you to live in. And you are my people. And I call you to be my people and to worship me and to worship me alone. And so they were called as a special people with a special calling, with a special task among the nations. And God made it very clear to Israel from its inception that they as a people were to worship him and him alone. And they were not to incorporate into their thinking, into their lifestyle, into their worship, any other deity. Because all other deities are false. And God stressed this so strongly, he says, if someone seeks to do that, they are to be put to death. And so this nation, this people, after several centuries, and in the process of those centuries, came to the point to guess what? They began to worship other gods. Now, take note of this. It's not that they totally jettisoned the worship of Jehovah God or jettisoned what was part of their heritage and their history as it pertained to Jehovah. They just faded him into the background, more or less. And he was part of the tapestry of who they were, but what was front and center was their worship of the gods of the idols of the nations around them. And God says, if you do that, I will bring judgment upon you. And now they're facing judgment at the hands of Babylon. And God, as he always did, raised up prophets to proclaim to his people his warnings, to proclaim to his people his promises, to proclaim to his people repentance. But you know what happens? When we begin to think insufficiently about God, we begin to lose sight of the majesty of God. Whether that is embracing other gods or whether that is just being indifferent to who God is, we begin to lose sight of the majesty of who God is. And thus, as we think back on the songs that we sang this morning, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. It is God who works within us to enable us to see him for who he is. So let's begin to look at some of the things that Isaiah said to his people. This, this is an incredible section in the book of Isaiah, 
chapters 40 through 46. And I'm going to take us just through a portion of that this morning. But just amazing statements as Isaiah speaks to his own people, reiterating to them that among other great realities, there is but one God. This is a people that were called on that reality, called to that basis, called to that confession that there is one God, not many gods. And the one God is Jehovah God who has revealed himself and made himself known. And now here, this generation is worshiping a multiplicity of gods. And because of that, they are ascribing to these other gods the majesty that is due to the name of the living God alone. So let's pick it up in chapter 42. Behold, my servant whom I, I uphold. He's here prophetically speaking concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as he refers to him as my servant. My elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. This is not social justice warrior type of justice. This is true justice. This is justice in the, in the context of the person of the true and living God, and that justice is far different than the social justice that is talked about today. But he says, I will bring justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice. That kind of ties in with the gentleness we talked about in 2820 class this morning. Nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. So one of the key accomplishments that the Messiah, the servant of God, will bring to the nations is true justice, the justice of God. Now watch this. Thus says the Lord, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. This is who he is. This is unique to God. This has become a passion of mine. Central to who God is is the fact that he is creator. No one else can create. Only God can create out of nothing. And God affirms here and repeatedly throughout his word, Old and New Testament, that he is a creator. And here as he reintroduces himself to the people of Israel through Isaiah the prophet, he says, here, this us says God the Lord, I'm the one who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it. He gives us breath. He gives us life and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, meaning the servant, as a light to the Gentiles. The servant, the Messiah, would be not only a covenant to the people of Israel, but a light to the Gentiles. This is quoted in the New Testament to say, hey, my fellow Jews, the Messiah was always intended to be a light to the Gentiles. The prophets spoke of it. This is one of the quotations. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison, 
to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name. We sang about the name of God this morning. God's name has very specific connotations. And very specific connotations should come to our mind as we think about the name of the true and living God. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. God will not share. God will not give his glory to another. And in this context, the Israelites were giving glory for these very realities to these false deities, beginning with creation. They ascribed the realities of creation to these false deities that they worshipped. That's part of that statement. I will give my glory to no one else. Nor my praise to carved images. Why should we praise the concepts, the ideologies, the philosophies of origins that give glory, that give praise to the ideas of man rather than the glory and praise that belongs to God and God alone? I submit to you this morning that part of the reason, an important part of the reason, that the majesty of God is missing in our culture, that the majesty of God is diminished in the church abroad, is because there has been an acceptance and embracing of this false ideology, of the false philosophy, encompassed in evolution expressed in the various ways that it's expressed. But it takes the glory that it belongs to God alone, removes it from Him, and ascribes it to the ideology and philosophy. And it's raised up as though that is the answer. That's the explanation of our origins and who we are and why we are the way we are. There are practical ramifications for the diminishing of the majesty of God in our culture, and in the church. That's one of the reasons. Not the only reason, but it is one of them. God is the creator. That is unique to him. That is unique to God. No one else can create. Non-intelligence cannot bring anything into existence. Non-life cannot bring life. Non-structure cannot bring structure. Chaos cannot bring organization. And yet all of that is ascribed to the false ideologies, the false gods, and the false ideologies of today that are not wrapped up in images, but wrapped up in ideologies and philosophies. Verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you them. So Isaiah says, I introduce to you again the Lord God. I call you back to who he is. And when my servant, the Messiah, comes on the scene, it will be declared about him that he is creator. What does John 1.1 say? In the beginning was God, and the word was God, and the word was with God. All things were what? All things were what? Made by him. But his servant also brought righteousness. His servant also opened the eyes of the blind. 
We jump next to Isaiah chapter 45. And we look at the first 13 verses. And chapter 45 begins with Isaiah referring to a particular individual who's not even born yet, not even on the scene. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him. Cyrus was not a, as, to use New Testament terminology, he was not a born-again, saved, redeemed individual. He was a king. I mean, he would, once he would come on the scene, he would become king. And God raises up kings and puts them down, right? And he was king over Babylon in the Medo-Persian Empire. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double door so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. God does unique things that only he can do. And God pro prophesies the future and it comes to pass. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. So before Cyrus was even born, God was calling him and identifying him. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord. Now watch this. And there is no other. There is no other other. There is no God besides me. And this always comes to my mind when I read this. Dr. Whitcomb in class would say of this, God looked around saying, I looked around the heavens and there was no God besides me. Why did this generation of Israelites have to be reminded that there is but one God? Because they had embraced a belief that there were other gods and thus diminished the majesty of the true and living God. Watch what he says here. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. A third time he stresses that. There's no other God. There's one God. And the one God exists as he has revealed himself, as in our confession here. There's one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's, that's, that's the only God. I am the Lord and there is no other. Fourth time. Watch this. I form the light and create darkness. 
I make peace and create calamity. He's sovereign. I, the Lord, do all these things. That's an active statement. Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What are you begetting? Or to the woman, What have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask, ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, you command me. I have made the earth. Now, if God is not creator, and if, the, if that is not true, then these statements are not true. And if these statements are not true, then God has no credibility. These are not poetic statements. These are direct declarative statements. I have made the earth and created man on it. We're created to be earth dwellers. I, my hands. That, that is the emphasis in the Hebrew. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens. Not these false deities. And in the 21st century, not the natural forces that we observe in nature. I, my hands, have stretched out the heavens. And all their hosts I have commanded, all the hosts of heaven. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So in the midst of Isaiah again and addressing his people and the majesty of God, an important component to that is we must recognize that God is the creator and that he has made all things and that he alone is God. When we begin drifting from that, we begin losing sight of the majesty of God and what it means for God to be God. We think that we can somehow in humanity, not just today, but throughout history, somehow we can redefine God. Somehow we can make God other than who he is. Somehow we can declare to God what we think God should be or how he should act or what he should be like. Who do we think we are? Who are we to talk to our maker that way? He is the potter and we are the clay. But when there's no fear of God in humanity's eyes, We miss the majesty of God. And so we treat him not with respect, but disrespect. Not with honor, but with disregard. And that's what had happened in Israel. One more stop. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 1 through 13, begins with Isaiah identifying two of the deities that they had become impressed with. Bel, Babylonian deity. Nebo, as well a Babylonian deity. Stoops. Their idols were on the beast and on the cattle. In other words, they were being carried around by uh, cattle and other beasts. And on carriages. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. In other words, their gods are, you know, 
They have to be carried about, and, they have to, and they're worrisome. They're burdensome. They stoop. They bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, even during this time, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. Wow, the sovereignty and the grace and the mercy of God. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will you liken me? This is a powerful statement. These are powerful questions. To whom will you liken me? And make me equal? And compare me? that we should be alike. We cannot reduce God down to our conceptions. We can only know God as he reveals himself and makes himself known. But yet that's what they did, and yet that is what man does today, and thus we miss the majesty of God himself. Because we want to liken liken him to some concept, some way of being that we think he ought to be. If God is a God of love, then why is there so much suffering in the world? That is trying to reduce God down. That is but one attempt, one of a myriad of attempts to try to reduce God down to a human way of thinking, stating that if I were God, I wouldn't be letting that evil happen. Who do we think we are? We don't understand what it means for God to be God. They didn't either. To whom will you liken me? I'm utterly different. And who can you make me an equal to? Because God is unique and distinct and different. We can only know him as he reveals himself. And to whom can you compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith, and he makes God. He's describing what they do here. It's, it's what they do. They get the gold and, they, and the silver, and they weigh it out. They get a, a goldsmith, and he makes a God. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They, they make their God out of their gold and silver. They make their God today out of their concepts, their ideologies, their philosophies, and they bow down to it. They bear it on one on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place, and it stands. From its place it shall not move. The one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer. No wonder. <laughs> it's a lifeless object. And ideologies and philosophies are lifeless as well because they're disconnected from the reality of the living God. So they can't answer nor save them out of his trouble. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, to your thinking, O oh, you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and what? There is none other. Again he says that. I am God, and there is none like 
me. Let's quit trying to shape God into who we think he ought to be. And I'm speaking generally of humanity. That was true in Isaiah's day, 600 years before the arrival of Messiah. And it's still true in the 21st century. We have a penchant for trying to form God into who we think he ought to be. To operate how we think he ought to operate. There is no other. There's only the true and living God. And there's none like him. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. What an awesome statement. <laughs> what God says stands. That's solid. And I will do all my pleasure. <laughs> God does exactly as he intends to do, as he plans to do. He does all his pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Listen to me. Listen to me. You stubborn hearted. Who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. And he did that in the person of Jesus Christ. It shall not be far off, meaning it's not hard to attain. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion, which is Israel. For Israel, my glory. Isaiah had to reintroduce his people to the majesty of the one true God besides whom there are no other gods and the greatness and majesty of the true and living God. So missing from our culture is a true view of the majesty of God and missing from the church at large is a diminished view of the majesty of God. When we see God more and more for who he is, we humble ourselves and we worship, as was reflected in the songs that we sang this morning. When Isaiah, when, when Elijah, when Isaiah saw God early in this book, his response was to prostrate himself. I'm a man of unclean lips. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's none like him. There's none like him. And God in his goodness and grace and mercy has brought us into a right relationship through, to, with himself through Jesus Christ. And we can talk to him and we can worship him and praise him and confess that indeed there's but one God and there's none besides him and he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we gladly confess that truth and that reality and take that good news to others. The more we see of God, the more we see of his majesty, the more that impacts our thinking, our affections, and everything about us. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for this opportunity to spend time together in your word and these blessed, blessed truths. And Father, uh, just the greatness and the glory and the majesty of who you are, these words begin to give us a taste. 
And Father, help us to meditate upon these words and these truths. And there's so much more in your word. Lord, help us to be people who are more and more caught up in the greatness of the true and living God and the greatness of your mercy and grace and the greatness of your love the greatness of your person. You are unique and distinct and different, Lord, and there's no one like you. And you've made us. And you've made us as those who bear your image that we may know you and fellowship with you and love you and rejoice in our maker. We give thanks, Lord. We give thanks in Jesus' name. This has been an audio recording from the ministry of Jefferson Town Bible Church in Jefferson Town, Kentucky, where we gather to proclaim God's word. For more information, please visit jtownbible.org.